0: Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out, starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff.
1: Hi, this is Kathy from Troy, New York. I like to listen to the missing chapter while I'm at work. It's a great distraction from my day. Many cliches have made their way through the airwaves over the years, all starting off the same way as a catchy, trendy slogan, then transforming into nails on a chalkboard every time you hear the same cliche over and over again. Well, the cliche game changer is not really an exception to this rule, but this time we're actually using it in its literal sense. On this episode of The Missing Chapter, we're going sports history, everybody, specifically basketball. And as the game of basketball has changed and evolved, one could argue that an idea in the 1950s is what really did change the game into the modern competition that it is today. Find out who this person was, his game-changing invention, as well as an interesting twist about the origins of one of the most historic NBA franchises on this episode of The Missing Chapter.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Missing Chapter Podcast. It's 2022. Uh, Phil, you and I have some great episodes planned, some things that we've mapped out that we wanted to do for a while um, that will come to fruition in this new year.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've some,
0: some really exciting things that I think the listeners are going to enjoy. Uh, today is one of those. We're going to get into a little sports history. Before we do that, we're enjoying some nice uh, Black Rifle coffee. Uh, we've we've had this before on the show. We're enjoying it now. It actually was gifted to us uh, by one of our students, Avery Merchant. Thank you, Avery, and and to her family. We're enjoying a dark roast today. It's a, it's a really nice warm blend, which when you're podcasting and teaching in upstate New York in January, is something you rely on.
1: And it's pretty strong. Too. It's pretty so strong. As parents, yeah. that's something we that's right. a
0: necessity. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But you know, Phil, we enjoy coffee. We talk about coffee a lot. For those of you that know us, and, and I feel like, you know, as listeners, you're starting to get to know us a little bit more. Uh, you and I are definitely both big, big sports enthusiasts. Right. We're, we're fans of sports. Um, but sports have also really played an important role, you know, in, in our growing up, in our lives today. Um, you know, I swam all through high school and, and through college. Uh, you and, you know, basketball has been in your family's bloodlines you know, through your dad and, and your other relatives as well. So it's, it's always nice when you can
1: incorporate history and our love of sports, Yeah, which is where we're headed today. It's where we're headed today. And I think sports and history also have very much like art and history have such links together, uh, because sports has played such a role throughout history, especially during wartime, especially during times of, uh, you know, uncertainty. Sports have, have played that role of kind of bringing the tension down a little bit, turning the temperature down throughout the world. And I think that's one thing, you know, you, you may not agree with a, a person politically or, uh, I don't know, otherwise, but it, when it comes to sports, it really doesn't matter. Everyone has uh, that same affinity and you, you're you're almost always playing for the same team when you start talking sports. Absolutely. And it, you bring up a good point because, you know, we're, we're kind of on the eve month of, you know, the
0: Olympics yep. coming back on. And no, that it's it's the fun divisiveness in our culture. Is that you can yep. you can be avid sports fans and and root for your sports team. In our country, you know, as many countries do, we take our sports very seriously. Right. Oh yeah.
1: Now, for for us, as you as you mentioned, uh, my bloodline is really geared in sports. So, for those of you that don't know, my my dad was a um, an amazing athlete. He played at Syracuse uh, with Jim Bayheim Um, in Dave Bing. And uh, he ended up playing baseball there at the same time. Uh, He had a short stint with uh, the Atlanta Hawks. He's played a lot of semi-pro teams from the Utica Wreckers to the Schaefer Brewers to uh, even signing a contract with the New York Mets that ended up falling through because of Vietnam. But I mean, I plan on actually having him doing an episode with us because he's just a a knowledge um, that really uh, I want to make sure and capture because some of the stories he has are just absolutely unbelievable. Uh, even when we're sitting down and watching an NBA game together, he he's got a story of every one of these coaches who are or owners. So like, oh yeah, I played against that guy, and he remembers uh, even down to the uh, to the game, to the you know details of how many how many points he scored against these guys. So yeah. and you know, Phil, we live in an area of the of New York State, in an area of the country
0: where you know we we're hours from New York City, which we've highlighted. Yeah, but we are kind of centrally located to a lot of important historical sports venues. We have our baseball hall of fame in Cooperstown, which isn't too far away. We're actually not a very long drive from Springfield, Massachusetts where the basketball hall of fame is either Phil.
1: Yeah. There's, there's tons of history around here. And and that's, that's one of the places where as a family, we would love to travel to, we loved Cooperstown, you know, um, going to the hall of fame. And of course, my sisters ended up carrying the torch from my father and, and uh, we all became basketball players ourselves. And the, the, the point here, I guess, is just the fact that it's, it's runs through our blood. So we love yeah. talking sports history. So why not talk about some sports history here? And now that I've already mentioned my sisters, I might as well tell uh, our listeners that we've, we've kind of gotten experience from every single uh, avenue, from my oldest sister, Wendy, going to Division three, William Smith, who uh, one of the, the big history pieces that we need to talk about is the fact she never had a losing season starting in seventh grade on varsity, all the way through college, um, having a, an incredible career. Uh, double state championship uh, in high school with St. Johnsville, and uh, going on to win championships at William Smith, and then of course you have my uh, middle sister Karen, who is still the New York State leading scorer of all time, who ends up playing at Syracuse, and then I of course go to Le College, which I'm actually going to mention today. So we have a little bit of history from Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three levels, um, and experiences from all avenues. So I, I just want to give you a little bit of background because. You might hear the passion of of sports and basketball specifically come out in my voice today. Um, but I think it's important that we that we address the fact that, like you said, phil, our our locality is so uh, close to really big pieces of history not just for the state, but for the country, uh, world and, and worldwide. Too. Right. And actually you, you said
0: carry the torch and it made me realize too. And, you know, to tell our, our listeners, we're actually not that far away from Lake Placid, right. You know, we're arguably maybe the most famous Olympic venue in the United States, that's great you know, with the miracle on ice. Um, it's a great point. You know, we yeah. have Saratoga Springs if you're a horse racing fan. So yeah, it's, and I'm sure everyone listening, whether you're, you know, in Europe or Asia, or somewhere else in the United States, you you in your mind know those locales, and if you're a sports fan, people who are from your area who became athletes, or um, areas that are significant in the athletic forum, right? You know, and it's in sports just provides a
1: great path to talk about history. That's true, and you know it dawned on me too. The the National Boxing Hall of Fame is actually in Casanova, right. in an um, uh, exit off the throughway. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have the long distance running Hall of Fame, which is actually in Utica, New York. So there's a, there's all sorts of, um, of venues uh, in our area. Now, the one, though, that I don't think people know about, because that's really the essence of our podcast, <clears throat> is something is is in Lemoyne College mm-hmm. that we just walk by all the time. That we just kind of like, oh, that's that room where everyone goes after games to to see our family. But I guess I didn't really appreciate it until mm-hmm. I got older, especially as a history teacher. So... For some of my local sports fanatics, you'll recognize uh, the name Daniel Baezone or Danny Baezone, which I think we, we kind of start this history lesson with that man uh, who invents this contraption that has turned into a, a known facet of the game. OK, so especially some of my classmates and teammates from Le Moyne College in Syracuse, New York, you, you will recognize this name right away. Daniel Baezone, he's the founder and owner of NBA's Syracuse Nationals. Uh, He came up with this idea in 1954 after being faced with a problem. The problem was teams are only averaging 60 shots per game in a 48-minute game. So you got to think, when basketball was first invented in 1891 by Dr. James Naismith, the original rules called for two 15-minute halves of play. When the NBA came into existence back in the 1940s, its executives knew that fans would be pretty disgruntled with such a quick game. So that's when the NBA decided, hey, we got we got to implement four 12-minute quarters instead of two 15-minute halves. So the logic that teams average 60 shots per game, it really became a game of keep-away rather than the sport that we all know and love today, especially around March. You know, March Madness is my favorite time of the year. But teams ahead in the fourth quarter would simply basically like, hey, let's just put a stall uh, for time. They, they passed the ball back and forth, dribbling away from opponents while crowds kind of moaned and groaned and then ended up heading towards the exits. So teams rarely used that game-long stall, but it did happen. So I'll give you an example of that because I know some listeners are like, really, Phil, did that actually happen? Here's an example. Fort Wayne Pistons defeat the Minneapolis Lakers on November 22, 1950 to an unbelievable score of 19-18, to 18, the league's lowest-scoring game. And I know that's an extreme example, but it, it wasn't uncommon for five or more minutes to pass without an, a single shot from the floor. So as the 1954 to 55 season approached, so many fans have been walking out of the league, uh, which had lost actually nine of 17 franchises uh, in four years. Uh, it seemed like the NBA was going to head for oblivion. Teams are leaving, fans are leaving. Uh, something needed to change. So that's the big problem that that some of these Uh, managers are facing, especially uh, in the NBA realms. It changed how fans viewed the sport. It was the motivation behind Daniel Biasone's invention. What was the invention? The 24-second shot clock. Uh, The shot clock, which is invented in Syracuse, New York, accelerated the pace of play and made the the sport more attractive uh, for fans specifically. And the the clock is essentially, you got to think about it, has altered the game of basketball at every level, really since its inception on August 10th, 1954 and it took place inside a gym on Syracuse's uh, west side. So it was a summer day. Um, a series of the game's leading players filed into this vocational high school called Blodgett Vocational High School. It's about a 10-minute drive from the Carrier Dome, which some of you might might know. Here's some key players, and I want to make sure and put some context to this because it wasn't just a random basketball game. There were some really key players, which I'm sure I'm going to name drop here, the Boston Celtics legend, Red Auerbach. Eddie Gottlieb, known as Mr. Basketball. All of them attended a Syracuse National Scrimmage during which the shot clock was utilized for the first time. So, all right, given that the players could use the entire time to shoot, Bison figured teams might still average 60 shots a game, but play at a faster and more exciting game of basketball. Uh, for all the obvious appeal of a shot clock, it took Mr. Bison three years, though, to persuade the NBA to go along with his idea. And you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, that's all well and good, Phil, but isn't 24 seconds just completely random? It's not. It derived the number of, uh, excuse me, he derived the number of uh, simply by dividing the estimated average number of shots a game over the previous three seasons, which was about 120 shots into the 2,880 seconds of a 48 minute game. So if you do divide that up, of course, you'll, you'll do the math and find out that the answer is 24 seconds. So, as rumor has it, the math took place on a napkin in a Syracuse bowling alley with general manager of the Nats uh, Leo Ferris. So these two guys are kind of mulling over how they wanted to work this and he, he does some math uh, 2880 seconds, 48 minute game, sure enough comes up with 24 second shot clock. So the year prior to the shot clock, how about this? the NBA teams uh, on average, 79 and a half points a game. With the implementation of the new of this new device, Teams are now averaging 93.1 points a game, and the number of field goals attempted climbed from 75 to 86. So speeding up the game at more than just higher scores, fan interest soared. The NBA was on its way to better days. Uh, another reason why fan interest soared is not because of just skill, but because of the chaos that ensued, really, uh, especially that first season. Um, At the very beginning of the game, because people are, uh, excuse me, players are rushing shots and a panic over whether they'd have enough time to generate a shot. People were worried if um, maybe this is causing too much damage to the game, you know, rather than being slow and methodic and slowing down your offense is really almost like a chess match. It's now turning into chaos, especially that first season to adapt to that. So Phil, you know, we could talk at length. We could,
0: conceivably make this the longest podcast episode we've done because we're talking sports and there's so many different things I want to say, but the two that really, I I think are highlighted. If you were to look at sports as a whole, whether it's basketball, baseball, football, any other sport, I think a lot of the changes, and maybe you would agree are either done for the safety of the participants and the athletes or really for the popularity of the sport and for the fan base, right. You know, is scoring up or down, People like to see high scoring games, whether it's the, the home run in baseball, whether it's, you know, the, the arena style football, you know, in, in the NFL and now baseball or I'm sorry, basketball. You want to see a high scoring game. I'm sorry. I don't want to go to a, 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 a game that ends up 19 to 18. You're right. You know, and, and if it's slowed down, it's methodical. It might be good fundamental basketball, but it's not fun to watch.
1: And it's a sport, yes, but it's also a business. Right.
0: And and that's it. You're not going to be able to play, period, if the fans aren't there. So right. the other thing I was going to bring up is is the argument that you need to preserve the integrity of the sport. And the changes that you're making, you don't want to change the the fiber of that sport. And I don't really think the shot clock did that. It might have modified it, but basketball's still basketball. Right. But it's so funny to to think that this was a this was a topic of conversation. something that needed to be addressed at this point. It seems like the speed and the length of, of games in general are always a topic of conversation. You hear it really today with baseball, you know, you know, are baseball games too long? Do we need to have, um, a, a shot clock equivalent for pitchers on the mound? Um, you can't step out of the, the batting bot or the, um, yeah, the batting box, you know, to speed up the game. I've always wondered, you know, with baseball I don't really go to a baseball game hoping to watch a, a fast game it's the opposite of basketball I'm okay with going on a Saturday afternoon in the summer and sitting in the stands for maybe
1: three to four hours right. I'm okay with that yeah and it, it's but, so funny you mentioned baseball when it when it comes to like a shot clock in baseball mm-hmm. because we went to a Syracuse Mets game um, you know triple A affiliate and and we uh, we were surprised to see there was a clock behind the catcher and we didn't realize what that was because we haven't been to a A right. ball game in a long time. And, of course, we looked it up, and sure enough, they had to give the pitcher uh, a certain amount of time to throw the ball because the, the games at AAA specifically were going just so lengthy. Right. Um, and they've, they've been talking about that with the MLB because as Yankee fans, mm-hmm. we know anytime the Yankees and the Red Sox play, you're, you're in for about a three-and-a-half-hour game right. no matter what. Right. So at some point, things might have to change. And I would actually make the argument that it's that this shot clock is not actually what ruined the game. It's probably what saved the game, Mm. and many think it's eventually going to make its way down to college play as well, which we know now it it definitely did. It did make its way down to college ball, but the NCAA did not implement a shot clock until the 85-86 season, and it started at 45 seconds. It was eventually reduced to 35, then 30, and now many experts actually, uh, including ESPN College Basketball analyst Jay Billis, he's calling for another reduction, which I think you could go a couple different ways. But either way, to stick with the topic, Bizon owned the, Nationals, um, the Syracuse Nationals from 46 to 63, actually won an NBA championship in 1955 and eventually passed in 1992. And it's, it's actually really interesting for me, Phil, uh, to talk about Daniel Bizon because this is something I know I mentioned earlier. This is something like after basketball games at LeMoyne College, we would, we would meet our families, have banquets in the Bizon room. It was just kind of like one of those things we did. But to actually talk about it now, where now it's it's, you know, we have almost sixty countries listening in. It's a really cool circle of events here that I think is um, it's an honor to talk about Le Moyne's uh, Daniel Bizaone and not just Le Moyne, of course, but Syracuse as a whole as a city. But I think after the break, I want to add another caveat uh, to this story, and I think would even become maybe even a follow-up episode on this topic. Something that involves one of America's most iconic cities.
0: you know, it's no secret to our listeners that we love our top fives, and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, the shot clock for basketball. What other um, game-altering technological changes were introduced, maybe to baseball, football, hockey, whatever the sport is? There's definitely, I think, a top five possibility there for us, which I think a is great exciting. Idea, yeah. You know, but as as fans of sports, it's more than just we enjoy that that pastime, that hobby. You know, sports really does give us kind of a unique perspective on history. And we've mentioned this before. It's, you know, you could study American history through baseball. You could talk about whether it's gender equality, um, you know, the, the role of, of wars and, and how sports have helped the United States heal during difficult times. Through the lens of sports, you really can learn a lot about our, our nation's country and, and really, you know, world history. Absolutely. as well you know the olympics you know we're on the verge of the olympic games you know on february 3rd so it's just nice when we we're all over the place on the spectrum really you know we talk about cars we talk about you know sports we get into the different wars it's i don't know it, it's been fun and and i i really enjoyed this one that's great it's different
1: and it, and it's a nice piece of local history for us too, right. which i think is cool uh, but the so the caveat that i mentioned a little twist to the story it, it's I never knew this part, and I, I actually reached out to my dad and said, "Hey, did you end up knowing this?" He said, "Oh my gosh, I never made the connection." So I hope uh, for for some of our locals that maybe we we never realized we had uh, a very strong connection to, as I said, one of the one of the most major cities in the United States. So let's go back to 1963 when it all started when Ike Rickman and Irv Koslov. I hope I didn't butcher that name too well, too bad. Uh, purchased the Syracuse Nationals and moved the franchise to Philadelphia. Philadelphia fans absolutely hated the Syracuse Nationals almost as much as they would hate the Boston Celtics. So if Philadelphia fans were going to get on board, there needed to be a major change. So Ike Rickman also had a cousin by the name of Mel. Mel owned a big ad agency in Philadelphia and was a big, big influence, actually. He even created the original uh, logo for the 76ers. Uh, Sure, they they thought they might get some good names, but even more important was feeling uh, like the team had a strong foothold in Philadelphia. So... They had this um, they had this competition. So we're asking people, hey, we got we got to get your opinion on on what you want the new name to be. So a few thousand entries rolled in. But there was one in particular that caught Rickman's eye. And this was a quote from Ron Pollock, a statistician from the 76ers, in an interview with NBC Sports. Here we go. Quote, "The late Walter Stahlberg of West Collinswood, New Jersey, won a contestant to name the club in nineteen sixty three. The choice of the club's nickname was announced on August 6, 1963. There were almost 500 different suggestions among the entries, and Stahlberg was one of several who picked the 76ers. However, his accompanying 25-word explanation was deemed the best by the judges, and he and his wife received an all-expense trip to the West Coast to see the 76ers play San Francisco. So it wasn't until 1965 when Rickman made a deal with then San Francisco Warriors to bring Wilt Chamberlain back to the city of Philadelphia that and that the new name and brand of Philadelphia 76ers basketball was then embraced. So you're going to get behind, of course, a Wilt Chamberlain and having its roots right back to Syracuse, New York. Um, And Dave Rickman uh, is quoted in saying we went from having 2000 people in a 10,000 seat auditorium to the place being sold out at every game. And that transformed everything. And the 76ers brand was cemented. That's awesome. Thank you for joining us and until next time I'm Phil Horinder and I'm Phil Schaff another chapter has been added to the history textbooks